Welcome to the Everyday Sniper. You got Frank from Sniper's Hood, and my voice is gone from the weekend. Just got back from Texas from the Guardian match, which I'm going to talk about a little bit later. However, uh, we have an episode for you. We're going to go back in time and like really far back in time, but there's a (laughs) modern twist to it. I have Marco Gonzalez on the phone from GDI. And he's got a new product coming out, and we've been using his product for a long time, so we want to go back in time, introduce you to Marco, let you know what the new product going on, because there's a Sniper's Hide Prime Ammo connection to all of this, and I think we'll just have a fun little cast for everybody as we get ready to kick this bad boy back off for the new year. (laughs) This is sort of our pre-relaunch for the Knowledge Bomb Editions. And um, we're just happy to get Marco on the phone. Marco, welcome to the Everyday Sniper Podcast. Thanks for having Frankie. Much gratitude. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you and I, we go back up. We were just trying to figure out the dates, man. It looks like we go back to 2002, 2003 in this industry. You were working. Um, you, you, you come out of the military side of things. Like I said, I don't want to out you too much. You out as much as you're comfortable with. But uh, you were working, man, back in those days. And deploying early and often. So uh, why don't you fill everybody in on a little bit of your background? Yeah. Um, well, when I connected with you guys, I was I was uh, actually doing some some work overseas, some contract work post post teams, and uh, ended up coming down there actually to do some training there with Jake and you, and uh, lay down behind a rifle. He was running a course down there and. I think I brought my 300 with me <laughs> and uh, ran through the course of fire there with, uh, with some 190 grain. That was a lot of fun spending three days with Jake on there. Uh, and yeah, that was, that was beginning. And I was, uh, I was tapped into what you guys were doing um, in the teams. You guys are subject matter experts and known and the facility down there was just, exceptional and spoken about uh so it was always something on my mind to get down there and do some stuff so came back from uh pump and when you um when you kind of jumped into the team side of the world you weren't a young pup man that's kind of a unique story for you in its own um you were kind of an older guy when you consider who joins that group you know yeah, yeah. You didn't say I was a young pup, right? You said I was an old pup. Yeah, old yeah, pup. exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Potty trained, potty trained. Because y- y- um, um, you were in your 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 kind of early mid thirties there. Yeah, yeah. When I uh, <clears throat> when I went in, I was uh, I was in buds there at thirty three, turned thirty four in there, and uh, you know got my cock pinged for. Uh, thinking that way what was i thinking (laughs) had a a pretty big spotlight on me yeah that's considered old um you know there is a there is a technically a a, an age limit it's like 28 i think it was at the time still might be the same and um yeah they were thinking i was having a midlife crisis there at the recruiter's office but uh you know raised my hand said hey whatever whatever and uh had to get an age waiver, do all that kind of shit, and then got a shot at, at the title, went in, and uh, got after it. Yeah, it wasn't pretty. I signed my share of deficiency chits, that's for sure. But, uh, yeah, you know the deal. 
Yeah, yeah. So then, so then you come down and and you do your job and you work and you deploy. I'm mean, and you and your three hundred win mags, dude. You were always a monster three hundred win mag guy. Yeah, I was. I liked them. I was running uh, at the time. We had a lot of loophole glass, but I reached out to uh, Jeff Hubley over there at Night Force, and um, I got set up with. Uh, it was it, it was old school. It was definitely. Um, experimental on my side um being a little dyslexic the whole um moa to mill conversion with the reticles and the turrets uh i I thought about you know i had a good discussion with jeff i was like i want to speak one language and he turned me on to the i guess more of a a hunter scope uh npr2 reticle i think was what i was rocking and uh, so I spoke MOA, MOA, and just simplified things in my brain box, and and it worked. And slapped that on the WinMag, and that was kind of my my trusty kit. Um, also ran the, I guess uh, you know predecessor to the M110 type platform. You know, it was a it was a knight's armament. Uh, yeah, the Mark 11s you guys had. That's right. That's right. And. Um, slash sr25 back then you know when we got those kits um you know they came all macked out in a pelly case with a can and everything you would need your glass and all that shit uh but it had um had like an obermeyer barrel on it it was it was pretty premium that thing was printing printing tight solid half number away um you know yeah, the, no, you guys, and you guys rocked it back then. And, and, you know, like I said, we, then you kind of, you got into the system and started kind of back and forth down to RO for different levels of training. And you even did, um, just prior to you kind of leaving that, um, you were doing the hand to hand stuff, um, and you did a few little courses on your hand to hand side of things. Cause you're sort of the, in the MMA hand to hand kind of edge fighting side of the house as well not just the long gun side of the, you know, that world. Yeah. Um, I wouldn't say MMA, although there's elements of what I, what I, um, do and still teach today. Um, obviously if you're in MMA, you got to have a ground component. You know, <clears throat> I started rolling in the, in the eighties and this is before it went, you know, parabolic coast to coast, you know, you had to travel around dip into seminars, take notes, you know, it was, it was white belts training white belts back in the day. Um, and, you know, smashed through that, put in my time and, um, blended in more of, uh, World War II combatives or what, what guys would consider as, um, close combat you know that you can you can google any of those names yeah but, the sykes uh, right you were doing the sykes fairbane type of you got it you got it you with your devil dog background um sykes fairbane biddle um these guys uh rex applegate uh training with the brits tying that in with the canadians uh, these are the guys that were training the you know pre-agency guys the oss and the whole idea of the 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 training methodology was was just to have very effective brutal close quarter combative skills um that were predicated on gross motor skill acquisition under stress so uh simply put you know the guys had a little bit of time to train 
you know, doing a, doing a little workup block and then, then they're pushing out the door. So you can't be expecting a guy to be traditional martial arts. You know, you're, you're on the, you're on the mat, you know, five days a week, six days a week, slapping hands, getting after it, smashing. Um, well, you know, military guys, operators in any of those areas, they don't have that time. So how do you get guys trained up where they can go into battle, whether it was W2 guys, WW2 guys, or, you know, bring it all the way forward. So the Marine Corps, that was, that was their thing. They were really tip of the spear on that. Um, uh, so the, that program there took like a blend of, of traditional martial arts, I guess, in its essence and its, in its DNA and and synthesized it boiled it down say hey what's going to be applicable not in a dojo with you know well-lit scenario with rules but you know in an alleyway uh in a shitter stall uh on a subway platform in between two parked cars at night and when it's raining and drizzly you got some groceries when you're not switched on and maybe 110 percent alert and orientated to everything going on around you how do you pull that off how do you pull it off if there's multiple attackers how do you deal with edged weapons, impact weapons? And so that became that became the focus. And that that's really where I camped out. Not so much MMA. However, my my close quarter combatives also blended in the Brazilian jiu-jitsu because I had spent time with the Brazilians from the early 80s to today. So um, you know, I'm active on the mat, slapping hands and getting after it and uh, taking some different roles to just mentor the younger guys coming up. And, no, uh, yeah. To- yeah, I was gonna say not to interrupt, but yeah, I totally enjoyed um, your courses that way, and, and your method of teaching the combatives. I think for like you're saying for people that you have to spin up quickly, that you don't have time to get into the into the weeds with your stuff was really quick, really effective, and um, easy to understand and repeat. Exactly, I run into operators that I haven't. I haven't physically trained them in say six, seven years. I'll cross paths with them maybe at the shot show as an example. And they're, they're telling me of, of episodes, activities overseas, et cetera, where they, they got to use the stuff and they were amazed because other than doing some of the drills, the solo drills were big on the solo drills. You know, if you got some simple little bags, you can bang, um, if you got a partner who could train with you and hold some pads, real simple stuff. You don't need a full-blown gym, right? You can toss a couple focus mitts in, in in a bag, and you show up on the X, and you got a bro there that maybe he's doesn't have your experience or he has your experience. Doesn't matter. Hold the pads. Do like this. You train him up. You train the trainer, and that became the methodology. Um, overall, my time in the teams deploying. And, uh, and it's funny, like even at the shot show, like guys are like, Hey man, we're having an after party. Come on up. I'll run into two or three guys are like, Hey, run us through some sequences. (laughs) And and just a little 15, 20 minute tune up, refresh, high five, boom, they're out. Um, again, it's not ring sport, much props to those guys. They put in the grind. Those are serious athletes that are, you know, you're going to go fight in the UFC. That's their aspiration or they already are doing that. You know, everybody's got a great mix. They got their stand up, their hand skills, boxing. They got Muay Thai. They got their grappling. Got guys doing real good with stand up clinch work against the ropes. Um, while there are elements of that that you see represented in close quarter combatives, the idea with close quarter combatives is, 
you know, in reality, you don't want to be going to the ground. You know, these are guys also that are dropped up, kitted up with with heavy gear. So um, it's just not the same as ring sport, if you could appreciate that. Yeah, absolutely. But, uh, and then one, yeah. one little side note for everybody, because you used to come down to RO quite a bit. And I can't I don't want to get too deep into the story with it. But there, there was a thing you and I used to do like every time you were down there. Don't say it. No, dude, it's making apple pies, man. <laughs> oh, damn, son. Yeah, man. Yeah, man. I'm uh, I'm a notorious felon on baking of apple pies. I'll make grown men cry. I just love it. It's good shit. Yeah. Um, it's a holiday thing. Every year, you know, started making apple pies, man, like in 2000, you know, was coming back from, from pumps and wanted to you know, kind of show the kids, you know, like, Hey man, there's some people out there sucking it up and don't have it as good as us. You know, like, like a lot of parents are trying to do, right. Teach your kids something besides being focused on gifts and shit. And, um, yeah, so we just started, started making apple pies. Um, yeah. Cause you girl. were telling me the story about bringing pies to the old folks and everything. And you got your own unique way of telling the story, which we won't get into right now. But um, mm-hmm. I'm like, no freaking way, man. You ain't making these pies. And he's like, not only am I making them, I'll show you. So we go to Walmart. We're getting that. And yep. so it became kind of an annual trek for you and I. What? Marco's coming into town. We better have the ingredients for apple pie because we're going to be making some pies for everybody. That's right. That's right. And now it's become a thing wherever I'm traveling. If it's Thanksgiving, Christmas time, and I'm getting invited over for dinner or, I don't know, freaking football party or some something like that. I'm banging out pies, man. On my way in, I'm whipping in, grabbing, grabbing all the ingredients. I show up with bags in hand and and I take over that little piece of a kitchen and uh, get that oven preheated and rock and roll, start peeling and slicing and getting apple pies going. And it's really nice if you do it a la mode. I remember um, Jacob Godfordson, mm-hmm. freaking old, old school stud. Love that fucking guy. Um, anybody doesn't know him, you should know him. Just, just serious business dude. Very technical expert at the precision and uh, Vietnam vet, just, um, much love and props to him if he's out there. Yeah. He's still um, kicking, man. He just had a birthday yeah. and blue steel still up and in, in, he's, he's feeling it, but he's still upright. So blue steel still friggin' jamming it. Blue steel. Yeah. yeah remember so. that nose dude? He had such a nose. So I told him he was a senior citizen porn star. <laughs> He could do some handy work with that nose. Yeah. No yeah. doubt. No doubt. No doubt. No <laughs> doubt. Yeah. Yeah. So we're there at Jake's little, uh, you know, where they had the over, what was that? Like the, the little shade shelter where all the tables were guys back in the day. Yeah. Going crazy with, with the cleaning. But he had he had a little uh, bunkhouse there with the kitchen. Jacob Gossardson comes up. He's like, let me get this straight. You're going to make some fucking apple pies. You know, how serious and wry he is, you know, he's got this, he's got this great personality and he's like, okay. He just looks at me and nods and says, he's like, well, we'll see about this. So he watched and guys watch guys are drinking and party. I'm fucking making apple pies like Betty Crocker. And, uh, when it was all over and I served it up, I even went out and got some ice cream, man. And, uh, there was probably 20, 20 dudes in there, 30 dudes. And, uh, there wasn't a, there wasn't a fucking, no, no fucking talking. It was just focused, silent concentration on eating and taking in the feeling of 
apple pie a la mode. Yeah, and, and, and not to give away a secret, but just to show I still remember, the trick was you bruised your apples, man. You beat your apples up. <laughs> That's right. You're a funny motherfucker. Yeah, right. just beat, beat the snot out of the apples and um, and then get them in the oven. It's, you know, it's over the years, you know, we're talking a couple decades of banging out pies. I've made some seasons. I've, I've knocked out 50 pies. No, no doubt. You know, I'll do them in batches of say 10 or 15, you know, I'll take over a freaking, if you got a proper kitchen with, you know, double stacked ovens, I can load those fuckers up and then, uh, and then foil them up and get them over to the old people. You know, like you remembered, you got a good memory. Yeah. There was a couple of these uh, senior citizen homes, man. There's nobody in there seeing them during the holidays. Some of their families, they don't have, everybody's passed. And um, so that became the thing, man. We'd bake the apple pies, foil them up, throw them in the back of the Pathfinder, and uh, walk them in and hand them over to these guys. Man, you walk in there, they're so fucking happy to see you. Old WW2 guys with their ball caps in wheelchairs, whipping around and chasing ladies like, tonight we got bingo dancing, whatever that is. You know, we got this going on. And <laughs> they, they were just so excited to get some apple pies. Anyway. Cool, yeah. Good memory. Good memory on you. Yeah. So anyway, we now you you do your job. You're doing that, and and while you're in and kind of transitioning to come out in some ways, you recognize some needs within your unit. Uh, one of the first ones was your M14s, and, and so this is where we start getting into GDI and and the direction you're going in there. So you identify a need, and you jump in with it with both feet to kind of address that need. Yeah, so um, one of the things I noticed, so I started GDI when I was still in the teams. There's there's a couple of us entrepreneur types that are um, doing, have done, are still doing that. Um, you know, just taking up that bandwidth to identify problems, create solutions, bring some value to the market, fill in a gap, whatever it is. You know, for, for us, what we were noticing was, you know, we got some high-speed forward clip on glass. You know, these are $8,000, $10,000 a copy, um, you know, whether they're, whether they're uh, uh, visual augmentation systems of one variety or another or just your classic day optic. Um, we, were, we were noticing that everything's coming loose, even during basic bullshit quals. Uh, forget about the training, you know, when we're running IADs and getting getting nutty after it, man, we'll have a freaking Penske truck floor to ceiling packed with ammo. It's like each dude's got like 50,000 rounds. That's not an exaggeration. It's no joke. And, um, you know, you'll, you'll burn through that in, you know, a couple of weeks. And um, anyway, everything's coming loose, right? So you're losing your zero becomes an issue. You got to go back down range you know, re-zero, it's a constant thing, or guys are just questioning their shit. And it's one thing when you're shooting, you know, these these target packages, you know, will have different stuff. Some of them have movers, some of them have just these silhouettes, whatever it is. But, you know, when your shit is not tight, you lose confidence and you're having to go constantly re-zero and you're worried about it getting banged around and coming loose. Um, so that became an issue. So guys became lanyard man, right? You're taking some gutted 550, whipping it up. And, you know, I've seen plenty of devil dogs doing the same thing. You know, you got to, right? You don't want to lose your glass. Right, You're right. Doing, 
if you're doing some training out in the Mojave and you come back and you're some Lance Cooley and you're, your friggin' RCO is gone. Uh, you got problems, man. They're doing a fod walk down out in the desert. You're not, you're not, you're not so popular at that point. Um, so, again, issues with that, but even more issues downrange. You know, than the bad guys finding your shit. Guys are losing optics. Guys are breaking contact, and they're like, look down, and holy fuck, no glass. Well, they're gonna find it, and those guys. They're resourceful. They're going to rigorous tape, bell and wire. They're going to do something to get that thing attached to their platform, probably an AK. So um, anyway, that kind of set the, the tone in the back of the mind that why, why is it that we have all this high speed glass? Uh, again, thermal, uh, whatever it is, I squared, uh, blah, 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 day optics that are just a very high end premium coming from the best in the business. But um, the mounts just couldn't handle the shock and the vibrational profile. That's basically how it started. But then quickly, uh, we got connected with uh, a need that was out there in the M14 world. And that was, you know, they were taking M14s. This is Army. Um, and uh, very much so in the Airborne Units, 10th Mountain, 101st, 82nd taking the old school 14s and pulling the wood furniture off, dropping them into, I want to say, Detroit. I wanna, I wanna, no, I want to say it was uh, Sage. Oh, yes. Yeah, Sage was one, too, as well. Yes, both. Yeah, yep, yeah, Troys yeah. and Sages and stuff. Absolutely. Yeah, that's right. And that became the EBR, the Enhanced Battle Rifle. So, you know, you have, you have this accurized, you know, strip the wood, drop it into this, um, you know, modular system that had rails that other other things uh you know different types of kit was not able to be slapped onto your your classic 14 so um then they were accurized you know they put a lot of love and attention to detail in it and they were using uh three and a half power acocks at the time and um one of the challenges that they had was you know how do you leverage modern optics on on a 14. So the stock solved for a lot of stuff, um, you know, butt stock and cheek weld and length pull and foreend and vertical grips and whatever they were putting on there, you know, um, bipods. But, um, you know, the issue still came back to the glass. How do, how do you get the glass on there? And how do you get it to stay? And how do you have that optic position rude enough so the guy has proper eye relief? Uh, fortunately for that three and a half ACOG has a very generous eye relief. So that, that kind of helped them, but it was still, how do you now attach it there? Cause there was no pick rail back over that stripper clip glide, right? So you had that, the old school stripper clip dovetail there on the, on the 14s receiver. So anyway, um, we developed the mount for that. We were working with uh, and communicating with Trigicon at that time, because that was their customer um not that it was big and official but it was like hey they're using our stuff and they're having a little bit of a challenge so you know took some took some trips down to brag and you know uh, figured out exactly what they needed designed this mount that was our g1 osm that was our first mount that we ever built and um you know jokes on me you know it's like the first mount we dove into and tackled um, you know, the engineering, the RDT and E it's, it'll, it'll jack you up, man. You know, that's, a, that's some serious spiral development. There's a lot of nuances to the 14, you know, it was developed back in the day 
to ideally be used uh, in Vietnam. I believe it was built originally in, in or around 1958, and um, Harrington, Richards, TRW, Springfield Armory, those were the original OEMs that got the contract uh, to build that and supply the troops. Um, things shifted over and obviously went the route of five, five, six, but you know, those, those, those platforms are, they're prolific throughout different branches and units. We had them in the teams. And, um, I love that thing because it was like, it's like a freaking wood chipper, man. Like you couldn't get it dirty enough. You couldn't dive into the nastier sand piles and rocks and just abusive, you know, rounds of fire put through that thing. And it just kept going yeah you well you remember the aussie guys that used to come down they ran them as well and um they even did it Mm -hmm. to the point where they didn't cycle because they ran them suppressed and they still Mm -hmm. liked it because they just got to reach up and grab that lever and jack it back you know but um like you're saying they couldn't get it dirty enough to break it and in their their job you know similar to your job they can't have something go down at the worst fucking moment so that's that's the direction they went as well that was the direction they went. And so, I mean, I, I love that thing. I used it in Afghanistan. You know, you kind of have a pick of what you want to do, like a golfer, you know, mm-hmm. I think I'm going to, I think I'm going to use my, my nights, you know, or I'm going to use, you know, the 14 or, you know, maybe you need, maybe you need the wind mag uh, or maybe you need the Mick bro 50, you know, you pick it. And, but back to that 14, the airborne units were having challenges with it. So we got them set up, long story short. And uh, you know, we had a, a unit that was getting ready to deploy. We did a uh, uh, net training for these guys, uh, went down there, got them on the line, and helped them get uh, their designated marksmen um, you know, dialed in and understood the nuances of it, how to, you know, mounting procedures, um, you know, zeroing and all the different things that that these guys need to be dialed in on their own without without anybody holding their hand and we did it so that was it and then um what was the call for when you first started the throw lever side when you were going to the direct mount not just the base because you did a 14 base um but then you had the throw levers now for the uh acogs because that was basically one of the first was the acog side of the house and you had to have that on off on off which is where sort of GDI has that reputation at which your throw levers and it's interesting because your throw levers aren't well known like you know in arms or even um your buddy down in Texas there uh you know that was oh they were considered the throw lever guys and they had some mm-hmm. they had issues that were unique to their systems that mm-hmm. had to be corrected yeah that's right yeah so um yeah, the first mounts that we rolled into that had a QD application were um, specifically for the 240 Golf to speak Devil Dog at the time, um, or just your, your 240, right? The, the, the army was using them. Yeah, too. the machine guns for everybody. The machine guns, yep, yep. right? Right. <clears throat> Seven six two belt fed. Um, beast and uh, Trijicon had developed a, an amazing six power ACOG and that six power ACOG needed to attach to that you know to that uh, weapon platform 240 and so um, again we got connected with them 
um, there was there was an interest, and we jumped on that and developed our uh, AW6 MGOM. So the AW6 was specific for the underside geometry of the six power ACOG, allowed them to uh, attach that on there and then slap it onto one of these big platforms. And so that had a dual uh, auto lock and quick detach, uh, quick detach lever mechanism. And um, whereas both the levers, when you close them, they automatically lock into place. And uh, Sergio kind of ran with the ball and started using them for different development uh, and more so evaluation and testing in-house um, at the time. Trigicon's um, world-class, five-star rated company. Um, you know, they had a, they had a battalion of, of engineers, guys with big brains, and they knew how to beat the snot out of optics to make them ruggedized. I mean, I don't think anybody's ever going to argue that that's probably not the toughest optic on the planet, the Trigicon family of uh acogs whether it was that big beast six power um that successfully has been on everything from 50 cal to 240 you know 762 and um and and, and the saws you know they yep, have acogs yep. on, on saws. and we took that program with you so developing your lever we you sent prototypes down even with the acogs and we did mag dump for days Mount on, mount off, mount on. Because you recruited us to kind of give you a hand in um, R&D in mm. that lever originally. You know, where do we need to go with this? What do we, I mean, we even did it on our bolt guns to increase the accuracy where mm. we're just about nuking a fucking barrel on a bolt gun and a 308 bolt gun mm. at that with our round counts just to go on and off, on and off with your system that mm-hmm. we're putting through the paces in order to, uh, to meet the criteria that they were asking you to, uh, to meet. That's right. That's right. So, um, the, the, the Marine Corps, you know, so we're going back now when the Marine Corps was rocking, you know, iron sights, they knew, you know, that this G watt effort was going to require day optics, magnified glass, the standoffs and engagements were, were considerably different than what they had planned for had done in the past. And so they were using, you know, I'm going to go now call it 2005 uh, plus minus Um, around 2005 Trigicon was awarded that contract. And that was for the uh, TA 31 RCO ACOG. um, And that came with a TA 51 thumbscrew mount and rock and roll marines were starting to get those fielded and at that point there um i had fired off an unsolicited proposal over to the the flagpole there in q town and uh you know they're like hey thanks but no thanks i think we're good um and it took about two years somewhere around 2007 um they raised their hand to trigicon said hey you know, we're having some challenges with um, with eye relief. Um, you know, if you remember back then, your A4s were pretty prolific, not so much the M4s. They were there, but there was a lot of, uh, you know, M16, A4s fixed stock, right? Right, right. So, so guys had to, uh, the four-power ACOG has approximately one and a half inches of eye relief. And so... Anyway, uh, we met with them 
and found out, you know, watched them on the range, yada, yada. We were very familiar with it. And we had already experience with the AWs, with the machine gun mounts, right? Um, also using the same um, uh, channel profile that Trigicon's famous for, their, their uh, 45 degree angled, uh, we'll call it the mount, the mounting lug on the underside of the optics. So uh, in working with the RCO, we just made a single lever version of the AW6 machine gun, took all the lessons learned from that, and the drill down on, the drill down on that, you know, that's, uh, those, those guys, you know, they create some really stringent, as they should, testing standards. Anybody wants to get their nerd on, you can go and pick up a copy online of the mill standard 810, you know, um, I think back then, you know, it was the 810 Foxtrot F, as in Foxtrot, uh, you know, progressed to the Golf, and now the most current one, I believe, is um, is the H, yeah, the Hotel. So, um, anyway, in that, it lines out all the testing criteria for these optics, what they have to undergo. And to kind of take one step back to that discussion, the points you brought up about uh, the work you guys did down at RO, you know, the the requirement for the Marine Corps was a 5,000 round endurance fire, during which uh, there was not a POI shift to exceed one minute of angle. That's that's pretty freaking significant. You know, first off, the recoil and pulse on a 5.56 is quite significant um, from an engineering standpoint and the work that the uh, engineers there at, at Trigicon had done to identify shock and vibrational profiles. Technically, the because of the weight and the mass, the difference between, say, a 50-cal and a 5.56 platform, there's, there's more of that uh, felt shock uh, experienced by the optic and the mount. Um, on the 5.56 platform. Uh, I know it sounds counterintuitive, but that's how the math works out. So um, anyway, uh, 5,000 round endurance fire. We did uh, 50 on-off removable cycles where there was no degradation of uh, uh, point of impact. And that was uh, proven out there during those testing, live fire testing, a lot of, lot of a lot of manufacturers or even the, at the different uh, uh, for mounts and for optics will we'll try and do some of this stuff in a lab setting because it's a little bit cost prohibitive. But we did it. Did it down at RO. You guys did it. I needed third party validation. So 50 on off removable cycles to confirm return to zero. So um, that was one of the big things. So I'd say zero retention return to zero. You know, the, the terminology is slightly varied depending on which circles you're communicating in. But as the name implies, return to zero, take it off, put it back on. Why would you want to take it off? A lot of guys are like, that's bullshit. I put it on, never took it off. Well, back in the day, um, you know, the units didn't want to. Let's just say if you're out at Pendleton or Lejeune, you're out there doing some some range work. Those devil dogs are coming back. They have a parts cleaning area there or a parts tank. You know, you've been there, Frankie, right? You guys mm-hmm. have like like the solvent yep. and the and and you're you're putting your whole fucking upper and lower in there and you're douching it down. And we did well, the showers too, rather than wait in line. We'd go into the shower and take the head off our shower and shove the fucking uppers into the uh into the water in the shower as hot as you could suffer it and wrap your mm-hmm. arm in a towel so you weren't burning yourself. Jesus Christ. All right, so 
hardcore devil dog shit there. And that while that might sound archaic and stupid, we're only talking about uh, somewhere between uh, say up to like 2010, that was kind of a protocol that, Hey, if you're coming back to, you know, you finished with that range evolution, don't be sticking the optic into the parts tank with the solvent and, and, and getting solvent on the, on the glass. Right. So they would take it off, clean their guns, then put the optic back on. But then the issue came with now we got to take a battalion worth of dudes, whatever that is, a thousand, eleven hundred guys down to the range and do an administrative evolution. It's just hard for them. The, the budget for the ammo, the time, it was just burning a lot of daylight. So um, there was there was a movement towards hey, how can we have something that a solves for the eye release? If you remember when I started the conversation, mm-hmm. that was a big thing, eye release. Um, and you know, some of the double dogs that were issued, TM4s, they've just collapsed the stock up, even if it messed up at their length of pull and it wasn't ideal. Um, they, they, they could solve for that eye relief, but the other guys couldn't. And so in 2000, I took about a year, um, of them doing some testing and evaluation on our mounts. Uh, we provided them the documentation that RO did, um, you and Jake, you know, with the uh, endurance fire, 5,000 rounds, 50 on off movable cycles. I uh, did five axis drop testing with an optic at one meter and at two meters onto, onto uh, I think back then it was on concrete. It wasn't just hard packed earth. It was like, bam, slam, son, you know, left side, right side, buttstock, muscle down, and then directly onto the optic. And, um, and during that, then once once the testing was done post drops, uh, again, no uh, depreciable uh, shift in point of impact or loss of zero in excess of one MOA. So what we were what the, what the test results came out is that we were, we were able to get 0.23, 0.23, you know, quarter MOA um, out of NACOG on these platforms after going through all that all that live fire beat down and drop tests and the drop tests all mixed in there. And that's what got submitted. And then, uh, in November of 2008, uh, we got contacted by, uh, by the Marine Corps and the GDI Arcom E model is what it was called. Arcom E model, rifle combat optic mount, uh, uh, that became an authorized replace replacement solution to, uh, unit commanders. So if they had issues, um, they could, they could procure the GDI mount as a replacement, uh, for what they were currently using. So, and I found, I mean, we were, we were looking at all the damaging and stuff back then. And I found one of the things that worked and kind of got me in trouble with, uh, again, our friend down in South Texas is that it, uh, I could take your mount with an ACOG, zero it up on my bolt gun, and then, like, put that in a utility pouch on your on your belt. You know what I mean? Or in your pack, right. whatever you want to do. To, so, say your day optic, your you know your three to fifteen or whatever your scope guys happen to be running back then. A lot of the night force were that three to fifteen contract. Um, mm-hmm. and, and say that scope goes down. Say you get that round through the glass. You crack it. You do something. That scope breaks. And because that's going to be the one with the most moving parts, it's going to be the, the, the least forgivable uh, product in that system. You know what I mean? Is the scope. That's, that's, your, that's your most fragile area. So if you break the scope while you guys are doing what you're doing, you can go into your pack, pull out that ACOG, 
throw that ACOG on there and you're not out of the fight. You know what I mean? And I thought that was a kind of a pretty neat little backup optic. Now, it wouldn't work in the comp world and some of the civilian stuff that we were doing. But I mean, in the zombie apocalypse kind of mindset, it's a freaking really good viable option to have your mount on an ACOG that's ready to go for any variety of firearm that can take that mount. Um, because it, the return to zero is there. You zero it up once, you throw it in your pack. There's nothing to get shift around with it, and yep. it's, it's going to work. And it's going to work. Yeah, um, good good points on that. Um, guys guys that started to understand our system, they would say, say if their primary glass was an ACOG, they would take and have, because it's small and lightweight, they would have an aimpoint micro on one of our mounts too. So then what they would do is using whatever paint pen or something, make, make a little, a little dot. Uh, hey, this is where I mount my ACOG. And here's my dot. If I pull that off and I put the aimpoint micro. Uh, plus also on the different mission sets, if a guy wanted to say, you know, if he's covering down a perimeter or they're moving into actions on and he's running the big, the big glass, that's great. But if he knows, hey, we're going to, we're here and, and we're entering or we're going into channelized areas or stairwells, whatever we're doing, urban stuff. A lot of the guys are like, you know, I'm just going to switch the red dot. So bam, bam, you know, that little micro is slapped on there, but it's, but the zero is, is there. And they've already gotten comfortable with and confident with the fact that, yeah, man, you don't have to go and re-zero your shit. And so that became a smart backup. Of course they had flip up irons, but, Given the option, especially in low light, you know, uh, dawn and dusk scenarios, having a red dot there, you know, it's, it's, it's just hard to see out of friggin' irons. And when the light sucks, just is. So, um, yeah, that became that became the way. Frankie, um, I'm I, I'm recalling here, you know, the, some of the ammo, you know, for the for the ballistic guys, you know, wondering like, you know, what kind of ammo? Holy shit, that was a ton, man! It was an amazing mix of uh of uh, 55 grain you know the uh the m193s and uh ma55 uh, as well the 62 uh ball but there was also some gucci in there um some some black hills 223 yeah the 77 know, uh, and stuff because we had the accurate stuff for the mark 12s mm-hmm, so you know and- you go up to the 77 for those guys um a lot of you guys ran a mark 12 and you can you can extend the accuracy and the lethality of that system to 800 um, with those, and we saw a lot of guys would use them out to that distance. Yeah, yeah, I think I think the Black Hills you guys had at that time, you probably ran some 77s afterwards, but in that initial round, they were they were 69 SMKs, 69s, yep, 62 to yep. 69s as well, and then we jumped up to the set from the 69, we jumped up to the 77, absolutely. Yep, and then you ran some. Uh, I mean that 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 optic and that mount. That was the same mount that transitioned from weapon to weapon, just to make it clear, right? So the whole thing was how do we test? It wasn't really a test of ammo accuracy or the weapon platform, um, or, or or even the optic. You know, um, it, it was can that mount hang with these different shock profiles? So you're going from 55 to 62 to 69 grain. All in that two, yeah, two, and then two, to five, our bolt six. guns, like we said, we moved them. What we I remember, we were nuke. We had like some throwaway M4s, 
you know, that you really didn't care that you were throwing the round count up with, and we were nuking these M4s. But then we threw in the better guns, just like you're saying, because it didn't go just from one platform. We didn't just do an M4 test. Then it's like, you know, I had gap rifles at the time, and, and the Harbinger was out there. And, and it seven was... Seven millimeter. Yeah, the seven millimeter, right? Bond. You remember the Nasika I had, right? It even went on my yeah. seven Wisdom. Um, yeah. yeah, absolutely, my seven millimeter, because we were shooting ASC. And so yeah. my seven millimeter was there and available. So boom, tw- uh, 175 is going 2,900 right. feet per second. That's right. That's right. That's right. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, I mean, we, we, we treated it, you know, you guys treated it like, like it was a lab. You know, you did it in prone and seated, you know, with a rear bag on a Harris and, you know, on a gun rest. And, you know, you're running the Kestrels. We had environmental data. It was a lot. Of, it was a lot of stuff that went in went into that and um anyway yeah I guess and then that, that brings us to the p-rom now which was now your your precision rifle optic there so then you switched over from these small m4 styles to where we're at today with snipers high and, and why we're talking and all this is now you're mm-hmm. going into the big optics the day optics and you're going into the you know i i, I want the 2500 and up night forces i want the schmidt and benders and and we're going into that direction and so there's, it's, they're like, hey, where's our solution for the Smith and Bender now? That's right. So, um, again, you know, going from, you know, the development of the, the mount, we'll call it, or the, you know, the platform, the rail for the 14 that switches into uh, quick detach mounts that are going to attach on to machine guns. Right. For the 6X. Right. Like we started talking about the AW6. And then there was a version for the saws, which was the M249 uh, 5.56 platform. And then into this RCO uh, ACOG, which is uh, ACOG mount, which which is the one we've been chatting about with the endurance fire. And all of this was kind of happening in lockstep very quickly in a compressed period of time like all, like in, in other words while the aw6 was being completed and the aw5 the rcom e model while not yet released we were taking lessons learned from the development of those mounts and and uh the, the machine gun for the for machine gun the, the mdo marine corps mdo and sdo contracts um and then Right at that same time, you know, the, the long gunners, the low crawlers, the precision guys um, on the mill side were just like, hey, me too. And so that that became uh, the reason that we, not that I wouldn't have gone there, you know, ha- have uh, have love for my brothers that, that are doing the work and uh, needed something for them too. It wasn't just you know, door kickers, infantry type guys. It was, you know, the guys that are doing the big glass shooting. So that became the P-ROM, uh, the first one that came out, P-ROM L model. But, but again, it was right around the same timeline. So, you know, 2008, Marine Corps adopted our mount or, or accepted our mount as an authorized replacement solution. Um, you know, 2007-ish, 6-ish, uh, was this AW series that was in the hopper and moving. Um, so again, quickly. And then right there around 2000, uh, 2009-ish, somewhere in there, um, you know, we were rounding the corner and 
you know, I think I brought the first ones. I think I flew down to RO right around Christmas time. Um, I was flying back to Jersey for Christmas and I dropped in to Corpus, linked up with Jake and Lisa and uh, said, hey, my man, here it is. Cause he had already done all that work. So he had experience with our mounts, with the QD, with the zero retention, the return to zero, all that shit. So then bam, here it was the PROM L model. I think we built the first one for a, I want to say it was even a 30 millimeter, you know, maybe with like zero on the way. Yeah, Something I like think that. it was a 30 zero and we were using the night forces again on them. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. And so during that Christmas holiday, um, you guys went nuts on it, you know, shooting it, you know, trying to trying to break it, trying to see, hey, can it perform like the ACOG series of mounts? And the short answer was, wow, Houston, we got lift off here. And then then we started building them in uh, 30 millimeter would say 25 MOA, um, 34 millimeter with 25 and even 45 MOA. Um, and that was it. It just took off. And, and the consensus back then was, hey, have that center axis height at 1535. That was kind of a, a standard accepted out there because there was a lot of forward clip on, um, you know, vast companies out there building their their stuff at one five three five one five one five three five is kind of like the the norm out there so that's that's what the original series was mm-hmm. and and um in, in, discussion oh, go ahead. no i was just gonna say so i wanted to kind of get into like the 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 retention system is really in a lot of ways it's simplistic but it's it's equally as simplistic as anybody else but yours is not only an easier but it's adaptable. It's um, it's it's uh, adjustable, and one of the big ones at the time. In that going back in time, this was an important piece. Was not marring up the rails and cutting into things and doing you know the knife edge part of how uh, the QD mounts worked prior to your system. Right, right. Good, good point on that, and that that certainly played into. The discussions in the early days there again we're talking 2006 7 prior to us getting that um you know that getting on the map there with uh with the marine corps and with trigicon was the ability for the mounts uh to adjust to worn or out of spec pickets any rails what we found out really quick you know we'd go out there with all our uh you know qc instruments and measuring of the Picatinny rails, M1913 Picatinny rails. You know, you can Google through it. You'll see the blueprint, rock and roll. Those are your instructions. Well, when you really dive in and dissect it, you'll see that there's variances that you're kind of allowed within the confines of the specs, the DIMMs, um, uh, and, and still technically be making a, a, a rail that's in spec. But the issue is, is that if the interpretation of the the shop, the manufacturer of that rail, you know, decides to go a little bit this way, still within the specs, you, you might find that, you know, you have 10 different rails out there on these platforms. <clears throat> and they could be anywhere from 10 to 20 thousandths oversized or 10 to 20 thousandths undersized. That's a, that's a big swing, man. And so the challenge is for mount manufacturers you got to kind of 
you know, you're like a guy in a freaking squirrel suit, free flying through, through, uh, mountain spires in a canyon, you know, you're, you're falling fast through this little space and you're trying to hit it so that everybody can mount your mount. You might find that some of the mounts out there and we've ex- we experienced it, you know, um, we get lots of reports of guys experience where they're like, cannot close our levers. Why? That particular rail is towards the larger side of those specifications of those tolerances and uh, the levers can't close. So then what do you do? You know, the, the guys that are, you know, in a situation, they're trying to like beat them closed and maybe they finally get that lever closed, but maybe it now it either a damages the mount and they can't open that lever. It's no longer QD. Now they're using shit to pry it open or two. Um, yeah, you forced it closed and you kept taking it off and putting it on. And, and now you've worn through the, the hard anno and you're into the substrate. And, you know, they got little filings there of the, the aluminum, typically 6061 on those uppers. But even the 7075, no big deal that those those levers have, uh, you know, the, the, the by design, how they lock onto that underside 45 of that pick rail. It's going to it's going to chew them up. Right. So um, especially if the rails that they're putting those on are towards the larger side. The other side happened too is, hey, if that rail is towards the smaller side, now you can't really get that mount so tight. So our system, we feel like we solved it in a way um, that that allows that user with no special tools, just a slot drive, screwdriver. Um, when he first gets the mount, he puts it on there and he can adjust. So if one rail is 10 thou over and the other one's 10 thou under, he's making his adjustments and he gets the levers to close and lock down onto the rail. No damage to the rail. There's no marring, no gouging. You're not chewing through the anno. You can take it on and off all day. That's just how the mount works. You can, you can make that adjustment. Once you make that adjustment, you don't need the, you don't need the, the screwdriver, the tool anymore. You can take it on and off. Um, with no, no tools. Yeah. And, and there's two ways I do it. Like sometimes if I know it doesn't have to necessarily come on and off as much, cause I use your mounts, the P ROMs, the originals from back then to this day, uh, in classes, we'll have a student, their scope goes down and something's not right. Something's not working. Scope's not functioning the way it's supposed to be. So rather than in the middle of class, try to diagnose what's wrong with this optic, pull it off, and throw another one on. And we carry two separate scopes. Um, and one of them was a Night Force, and the other one was a SWFA Super Sniper, but I have, like, them in a P-ROM, so they can just lock on. Now, what you could do is just grab a Leatherman, your flat uh, your flat screwdriver tool in your Leatherman, you pop into there to your screw slots, um, your screwdriver yep. slot, and you can mm-hmm. tighten it down so you can't open the lever. Like you were saying, you need a pry bar almost to do it. Or you can play with it and find sort of that happy medium where you're just getting, maybe it's a little extra effort. And I tend to go on that little too much effort for Frank, but I don't care. I'm not in that big a hurry, Mm -hmm. but it keeps me right where I need to be. So you can find sort of a middle ground where you're still going to get it off, but with that little extra effort, or you can go, you know, beyond that and not need to take it off without having to loosen it back up but it still doesn't really mess you up because it's more of a straight clamping motion and not this pinching or wedging to hold it on. It's a clamp. And so if you loosen that clamp, 
you're it, it'll operate the same because you're not throwing the whole system out of whack. So I found that that ability to kind of run it three quarter tight, hundred percent tight, or even just sl- you know back it off completely to take it off using the screwdriver part mm-hmm. doesn't really mess me up. Mm-hmm. When you say mess up, meaning loss of zero, loss of or, zero, right, or not come right. back to where I need it to be. That's right. That's right. So you know we've had customers kind of explain their their protocols, what they like to do. For the guys that are like, absolutely, under no circumstance am I taking it off. So I want to, even though it has QD levers, I want to just put it on, leave it on forever and ever. Amen. No joking. And what those guys give a shit about the most is zero retention. They want to be able to do their live fire, course of fire during training. Then they want to be able to go out there and... You know, some of these guys are using work guns, right? So uh, if they're work guns and they're not going to take it off, they might they might just, you know, put it on there and never take it off, have a marking on the rail in case they ever did have to take it off. Um, and again, like you play around with the level of tension, we like to refer to that tension of the lever because people are like, well, how do you know? Is it is it an auto adjusting tension? And in in our experience, we feel like that's not the way to go. That if you have an auto lock, you can you can have the tension automatically adjusted if your design allows you to do that. What we find is that that might not be enough to go through that stringent shock and pro, uh, vibrational profile testing that we were talking about on 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 the A10, you know, the mill standard A10 type. Uh, qualifications, right? The, the inline shock and the three axes, this is a big thing, three axes, uh, uh, vibrational profiles. Um, they're trying to simulate a weapon mounted, um, whether it's in a fixed or rotary wing platform. You're like, Jesus Christ, who's, who's using that? Well, these guys are freaking door gunners. Uh, or if you're in the back of a Humvee, and you got your 50 on there, you have that pintle mount and a pintle mount, you know, mounted up to the, to the, to the frame of the, the Humvee that, you know, blasting over rough terrain, that vibrational profile, it's knocking out dental work, man. Like, you know, your, 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 your teeth are going to be shaken. Uh, that vibrational profile transfers through the, through the vehicle, through the pintle mount into that weapon. And that, destroys optics and it also if you don't have a robust optic Trijicon has mastered that so the next thing is well what's the weak point well the mount and so how do you have a mount that can hang with that kind of abuse so taking that back to the PROM that same technology that we do on the on the machine gun mounts goes into these very streamlined lightweight uh, mounts uh, for precision glass and um, and so the adjustment of that lever and how you want to get that set up, just understand that that has gone through some extensive stringent testing. They don't come loose. So that gives confidence, especially, you know, nowadays, you know, last five, five, 10 years talking to hunters, you know, they got big money invested into these hunts. Um, they're going out there with 25, 50 K into a hunt to get on the X and, and hunt that trophy. Um, and they're like, man, you know, we've been on hunts, guy slips on a mossy rock glass, glass smacks the rock, uh, either the optics broken or that, that impact alone has now shifted that mount. And now they have a POI shift, no zero. They're out of the game. Yep. Hunts now- over. 
before we jump into the prime mid, which is mm-hmm. where we're here now and today and what we're going to talk about, yeah. but I mean, yeah. your systems have mm-hmm. been through pretty much kind of every contracting that inquires amount that have been out there. And like you said, extensive testing on both, you know, the civilian side and the military side. Cause you get, you know, the, the stuff we were talking about, we did at rifles only is one thing. The stuff Trijicon mm-hmm. did is another thing. Then you get into the military system and now they're looking at all this stuff, putting it on their pile drivers, their shakers, their movers, you know, all their. And so your systems yeah. have been through these ringers and it's one of those things is that you don't have a big online presence. You're not a big influencer guy. So, you know, certain people here, oh, I love this mount, th- these other mounts that are out there. Yours generally wins a lot of these contracts um, that have gone through up against some of the bigger name players and those names you know. Yeah, you know, I kind of suck at the, the we'll call it the, the marketing thing. I'm a, I'm a engineering nerd by trade and um you know and taking the end user experience of downrange and then still connected with the brotherhood and um you know hearing what the problem is i want to solve problems right and then the way to solve problems um you know i kind of take i kind of take the trigicon approach i mean those guys back in the day they weren't like oh cool you're prior military guy your mount must be great they were like okay we'll test it well, those guys went Captain Insano and tested the snot out of it in ways that are just medieval, like beating the fuck out of it in a lab. They have specialized fixtures. They can simulate uh, different shock and vibrational profiles. Is it mounted on pintle mounted? Is it is it in a helo, you know, fixed wing, rotor wing? Is it this platform or that platform? Different platforms, right? Like the like the uh, like the scar, right? The infamous scar. That's an optics destroyer. They'll simulate their optic on the on the vibrational and shock profiles of a scar and where it'll destroy, it'll turn other optics into peanut butter. Their shit lives through that. So they're in a constant spiral development, and that's why they are who they are. Well, we went through that ringer to at least be acknowledged by them, like, hey, you know, we build a good mount, and they went through the they put the mounts through it. So it it's the industry side of it, um, relationships with companies like that, um, you know, to kind of segue right into, you know, that when that M110 CSAS contract came out, the compact semi-auto sniper system, 762 platform, basically uh, it was the M110 enhancement uh, on the Army side. Um, and there was some big players in there. That was a high-profile contract. It went through draft. To get from draft RFI to RFI to draft RFP and then full RFP out there, I'm I'm a little off perhaps in my memory, but it was easily all day, uh, five years, maybe six years. That's a long road. Um, A lot of industry days, a lot of time on the range, a lot of spiral development. So we approached some of who we felt would be the the top dogs in that competition. This was for the weapons manufacturers, right? So you had the, the big names in there. You know, FN, SIG, H&K, yada, yada, all competing for this very high profile contract. And, um, you know, the way I looked at it, you know, I didn't have all the connections in the world, but um, I just, you know, humbly knocked on some doors and uh, we ended up uh, connecting with H&K and they submitted their platform. Um, 
with uh, with our mount after they did their own in-house down select. And uh, Wayne Weber, great guy out there, uh, uh, you know, he believed in our mount and used that. And the Schmidt Bender PM2, I believe, was their was their configuration. So it was their their platform, you know, the S&B glass and the GDI mount. And that went through a long trial and down select. And at the end of the day, um, the H&K won. And with our mount, we were very proud of that. Um, what happened afterwards, unfortunately, I think a couple of years later, the contract, you know, just um, switched to the deep. name, you know, yeah, people they because they can pen that shit. So it, it got it got dissolved. You know, we'll just say that that program got dissolved. But right. I guess the takeaway the takeaway there is that you know, for us to have gone through that whole you know, six year journey, call it, um, and then you know, get there at the end after the stringent testing and, uh, both on the industry side and on, uh, and user side when it went through down select, et cetera. Um, yeah, man, the mounts, the mounts did the job and do it well. So, and, and, and so, so now we, you get with Jim and that brings us to the primid. That's right. So Jim O'Shaughnessy, that guy's a badass man. Um, love how friggin' red, white, and blue he is. He's a family man. You know, he comes from the Midwest, uh, Wisconsin, and um, guy grew up on a farm and grew up with a rifle. Grew up hunting. You know, he's he's that guy. It's not a surprise that he, you know, you know, his company is prime, and he wants to put out the best product that he possibly can, and um, you know, speak to the needs of the shooting sports industry and all the different variations out there, whether you're, whether you're a, you know, bench rest guy or long range hunter guy, or you're just, you know, two way guy that wants to just have something around the house. Uh, you know, he, he speaks to all those, but the, the hunting side is what I, when I started to hear his story and learn more about him, um, it was the hunters and, and, and this started to become a reoccurring thing over the last decade was, you know, the hunters, the hunters, the hunters, because again, if you haven't, haven't sensed it, that the primary focus of GDI in the early days, you know, the genesis of it, I was still active duty. I wanted to take care of the devil dogs, take care of army guys. You know, there's kind of the history there had my head down in that while I was attending the shot shows, you know, the shot shows ended up very quickly in the beginning of that. I think I've been to like freaking 18 of them. Um, while it is technically for the shooting and hunting outdoor trades as the acronym IDs, um, there's a lot of military business taking place there. It just is. And so you're able to connect and engage. But the one group that I was able to connect and engage with all the time was um, these hunters, these long range hunters, these precision hunters, or the guys that are, you know, they're going out there for these, on these very expensive hunting trips with a lot of investment and time. This is their passion, man. They want whatever they are. They're doing a target package on that thing. They're flying in on the exit. I mean, they're deploying to that animal's backyard and then humping it in and just listening to their stories. Yeah, man, I'm up in a freaking tree stand and, you know, dropped the rifle. I was lowering it down and I slipped. I slipped on a rock, slipped up going over a fence. I handed it to my buddy and then he fell down. And all these hunts that have gone sideways, and that was a discussion with Jim. He was just acknowledging it all and telling me some some personal horror stories and that of his buddies, how they just missed this trophy beast. And that's when the discussion came, and it was like, what do you, 
what would you like to see? You know, and that kind of, I think at that point there, he, he crossed over and like high fived you and said, well, what would you like to see? And I took those notes because that was coming from, you know, two guys I consider SMEs and, and kind of filleting that into the conversations I'm having with badass, badass hunters. I mean, uh, Jacob Bynum and, and his dad, um, they've hunted all over the world. Again, serious hunters that take precision um, at a very high level. Um, Henry was, was, was an amazing man. Yeah, yeah, seriously. I mean, Henry's game room was is gigantic, man. It's friggin', it's a museum in its own right. It's its own house. Yes. It's its own house. Like, you could move a, a, a family of five in there. And um, the guy has been out there in these crazy, you know, scenarios with dangerous animals that want to kill you, man, stomp you to death, to have the sack to go and hunt that shit, fucking props. So anyway, you know, just being around and, and hearing that uh, from Jacob and rehearing it from, from Jim and the passion about the hunting, it was like, okay, what do hunters want? You know, well, they want they want accuracy. They want precision. They don't want to lose zero. There's a lot of things here that are kind of similar to the military side. Why don't we take what we've leveraged there uh, technology wise lessons learned on the mill side and build something for the hunters? And, and, and you so, slim this thing down. They want less weight. So your mount is I mean, I don't have the weight spec in front of me, but it's noticeably yeah. smaller than the PROM. Yeah, it's it's um, not that the P-ROM is a big beast. The P-ROM, um, you know, comes in at the weight of a standard set of rings, just to keep it in mind. Remember, it's not made out of steel. It's made out of the P-ROM, um, as we built them in the past, they were 6061 T6. So what what appears, you know, massive, just keep in mind, it's, it's not a chunk of steel. Um, but that said, um, it's the weight is identical to a uh, typical set of, of steel rings, you know, your classic two piece rings. Um, that's the Piram L model. Um, in, in that products uh, evolution, once again, the Marine Corps surfaced back up and um, um, sorry, not, not the name drop, but it's, I have so much love for him and I have so much, so many of my bros are devil dogs uh, we were we were uh, at the time um, staged outside the back gate of Camp Pendleton, so I got a lot of bros that um, we crossed paths in the sandbox, and then remained good friends, um, you know, cracking beers um, out there in that area, SoCal. Um, so great guys that, uh, that I just want to give give props to. And so so the mount there that they were looking to replace was on their. Uh, their sniper rifles um they wanted a one-piece mount and uh it was it was a solicitation that went out just for a mount which is kind of rare um and uh, it was it was there it was going to be the improved improved mount one piece and they had their criteria uh for performance and um we then hybrided the l model into the m model the m m as in mike and so the PROM M model was born and the PROM M model um, closely replicates what you're going to see here in the primate. And so the 
PRM model, it needed to be lightweight, it needed to be very ruggedized, it needed to be able to allow uh, three or four of the uh, Picatinny lugs rearward of the mount open. That real estate needed to stay open because they wanted to put on their angle cosine indicator and um, uh, backup iron. Um, and so uh, they were using a Knights, one of the one of the those sweet little micros. Knights armament, you know, a little flip up. Yep, 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 gotcha. Yep. Yep. And so, so that real estate's taken up, right? So you can't just pull them out all the way back. So we needed to solve for eye relief and for these two pieces of, of, uh, of gear. And, um, and that became the M model. So then when, when it came time for this project, um, that we started off, um, you know, again, listening to what the hunters wanted, you know, what were the issues that they were running to in the field with the mounts, um, and and how do we solve this? Uh, it also needed to be ultra lightweight. I think the um, you know the M model came in somewhere around eight seven ounces, something like that. Which is think about that. Yeah, yep. yeah. That's, that's and, freaking and light. Got, and one quick note too: you're going with this mm-hmm. mount because you talked to sixty. Uh, uh, the the other steel you're using, you're at the seventy seventy five now T six, where the other, you kind of upgraded a little bit. <clears throat> that's right you know i mean here we are it's 2021 it's like come on dude get with get with the program gotta be gotta be leveraging well and that's been an issue of mounting i mean and not just any one brand uh i had told some people like we just had like some arcan rings not expensive rings not that but these are uh, you know aluminum rings that are being sold by manufacturer and they have like a spec on it. Hey, 45 inch pounds on the side and you got a 45 inch pound limiter and you go and pop it on and it's snapping this aluminum. And we're kind of looking at with COVID with a lot of these things, why are we seeing so many mounts snapping aluminum? And it's, it's a little bit of the anodizing and what's going on, trying to make up for the, the, the you know, the kind of a crappier uh, steel that's out there. And you went the other way. You went forward with your steel instead of kind of saying, well, let the anodizing handle it. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, the, the anodizing aside, I mean, we, we're, we're still adhering to what we're seeing in, um, you know, in, in the, the call outs on, on military contracts, which is uh, mil spec type three hard coat anno. Um, you know, so as everybody knows, that stuff's, you know, been there, done that. Uh, and sometimes the substrates, what we've noticed is dependent on the mill and the sourcing and where some of the distributors for the different mills, some of the distributors might carry these substrates that come from overseas. So you really got to know like where your ingredients are coming from to speak baking, tying in my apple pie, Mm -hmm. helping people are Want to taste some apple pie? Maybe I'll make yeah, some down the, at Jacob this year. The holidays, man. We we got to have it's apple hol- pie for Christmas. Uh, apple pie. So, like the apple pie, you got to know. Hey, man, am I using Green Granny Smith? Am I using Red Delicious with the substrate? It's not enough to say that you're you're using sixty sixty one or seventy seventy five. You got to know its origin, its DNA. You got to have certs. You got to make sure that you're not just you know buying from the lowest common denominator, you know, cheapest version of it. And which brings me to today, you know, now we're in this era of the vid and it's just challenging as fuck to, you know, source 
all your stuff through your normal channels with the same lead times and the same pricing. It's like, man, we're putting out RFQs and getting, uh, getting these quotes that come in. And they're like, yeah, it's, it's good for, it's good for five days, straight face. It's good for five days or it's good for, I've had some, it's good for two days. It's good for a day, a day. They're like, yeah, like we need like a PO like now. So, um, whereas back in the day, you know, if, if that, if that doesn't make sense, like back in the day, you send out an RFQ in January, you know, you're, you're still good three months later, you know, yeah, yeah, unless there's some excessive volatility in the market. And that's, the, that's the key term, excessive volatility with all this stuff going on, um, with scarcity, with supply chain. I mean, look, we ran out of shit paper when all this crap started. So, right. um, you know, there's issues, man. If you're trying to get your hands on, on the wrong substrate, you know, uh, got a friend of mine is in the space and the heavy defense space, big boy company, you know, they can't find copper to build some of the things that they need on their precision machined componentry. They can't find it. So now like something that was supposed to be delivered, you know, last spring, you know, they're hoping they're going to get it there by this spring coming up around the corner. That's like, it's, 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 it's tough. So yeah, yeah. to your, to your, to your point, mounts breaking and whatnot, you know, uh, this is just something that the due diligence of each manufacturer find out what's the DNA of, of that substrate. If you got your sources tight, if you got certs, if you know, it's, you know, American material and you know, you know, it's origin, then cool rock on. Then it becomes a matter of, you know, your engineering, your geometry, and have you been doing some of this different types of testing to this uh, basically test to failure? That That's kind of like. Well, the, and this is a great segue into the dollar amount now, because we're coming into the the, 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 the the meat and potatoes underneath the hood, because mm-hmm. one of the biggest complaints is, is where we're going dollar wise with these mounts. I mean, you run into the, the spur family, you're three, 400 bucks and up, Right. And people are fine paying that and that. But then you look at yours and you're in that 550 to $600 zone. Yep. If people are paying attention to what effort you've put through on the backside to make sure this mount is as bulletproof as it can be and can handle the rigors of the military industrial complex there or however you want to word it. Yep. You, this is effort. This is time. This is revision. The, you know, this is sourcing. This is knowing all chain of custody all the way down. And mm-hmm. that costs money. And so it's like, you know, bipods today. Everybody's complaining we're at the $400 zone for bipods today, which is where we should be. A machined mm-hmm. bipod over a $90 stamped steel one is going to yield you effects. It's going to be it's going to be square. It's going to recoil different. It's going to be even when the legs come out. It's going to be geometry and angle. So again, that mm-hmm. recoil pulse is in a very specific direction straight back and you're not inducing an angle through a submade bipod. Now, we're talking scope optic mount. We're talking milliseconds and microns, thousandths of an inch, like 11 thousandths of an inch at your scope base, 11 thousandths of an inch from the front and the back is 20 MOA. Mm -hmm. So now we take a thousandths of an inch wiggle movement, deviation, whatever you want to call it in that optics mount. And now you have bigger issues downrange where you could see it. 
where it almost becomes almost two inches, I think, is what it, I think it was what it comes down to. Um, you know, just like 1.75 or something, uh, you know, distance-wise, where if you're a thousandth of an inch off, you're about a, a 1.7578, something like that, without me doing math, it, yep. uh, off. And if you got a manufacturer who can sell something for $150, you have to ask what kind of process did that mount that's supposed to be QD, for lack of a better word, what kind of process did they go through? Is it just depending on machining and to know that a clamping system is going to be a a secure type system? And they're hoping it's going to come back where it's supposed to. And through the accuracy of 99% of the people out there, won't get noticed being beyond that person's accuracy. Or if you get into our game or the PRS game or even some of this, like you're talking the hunting side of thing, where you get an individual who can exploit that accuracy. They don't want to see it go beyond what they're capable of. If I'm a three-quarter inch or three-eighths inch shooter, I don't want your mount to give me five-eighths inch worth of performance. I'm a three-quarter or three-eighths inch guy, and you're giving me five-eighths. Well, we got a disconnect here. So if I'm a three-eighths guy, your mount should be giving me a quarter. Exactly. And, and that's where I think the price pointing and the pricing of this stuff comes in because that to me is the biggest hurdle or hurdle, hurdle, what I don't even know what word that is. Um, I, I just invented it. So maybe that's your crypto. You were thinking hodl. Yeah, yeah. But now you're. My, yeah, my, my crypto's like kind of flat right now, but my crypto is doing mm-hmm. pretty good for a while. It's a little flat this week. Um, mm-hmm. But um, that's the hurdle to get through is how to convince somebody. This $400 bipod's going to do something different than this $90 bipod. How is this $550 mount going to do something different than this $150 mount? Exactly. So, you know, and, you know, not sure who you were referencing out there, but <clears throat> big props to, to Casey over there at Atlas. You know, he built some bomb-proof shit. And, you know, when I look at his stuff, it's like, man, if, GDI was going to build a bipod, which we're not, um, it would be like an Atlas, you know, it's like bomb proof, like you can rely on it. And that was kind of the, you know, rely on it when it matters most. And I'm kind of a buy once, cry once kind of guy just out here as a consumer myself. Um, I'm not interested in some facsimiles of, real things that are out there. I mean, I get it. If you're on a budget, it's better to have something than nothing. Fuck it. Do it. Start. Just start. But ultimately, um, from my perspective, the shooters that we work with, they want to, they want to invest in their system, you know, and, and back when we launched the PROM L model, which was well over a decade ago, you know, I think we took it to market at like 500 bucks. I mean, um, uh, if you look at the spur retail, I think he has some models that are five, five and a quarter, five fifty, something like that. Maybe you can get a good guy price cheaper, but that's just what I see them online. Like at, at Randy's, you know, props to mile high, by the way. Um, so, um, over that, over that hall of time, we went from like, to 550 and then we've been at uh, i think they retail now at 600 if you go online that's full, that's full boat with no discount code or anything but just 
you know, 600 bucks. And we've held that price for like the last four years, which is very difficult to do. But it's even more difficult to do right now because of the uh, the volatility and the instability of of material acquisition, sourcing. Sourcing sucks. Um, buying things, it's kind of like you're buying futures, man. You got to like load up on material with a BPA, a blanket purchase agreement, and just kind of hope that, you know, stars align and the pricing or the, the source doesn't dry up. And they're like, hey, sorry, JK, you can't get you that material at that price. But you're still trying to take something to market. So I'm sure all the manufacturers out there, um, you know, attest to the gymnastics that they're trying to do with their with their cogs, you know, to build out their bombs and do their cost analysis and get something to market where, you know, they don't eat their lunch and they're able to still produce the same exact quality. And that's what we've always been about. When I started building the mount, uh, mounts back in the day, the first thing I noticed was, you know, again, just real quick, holy shit, there's dudes running around with bailing wire and 550 cord whipped around their glass. That sucks. How can that change? Two, bad guys get optics. That sucks. How can that change? Three, if I'm building it for a regular guy out there like I am right now, well, he gives a shit too, because if he's going hunting or he's protecting himself or he's, you know, he's out there doing some, some match, you know, he's put a lot of time into his load development and to travel and all the stuff. It's a mad amount of money of investment. It's like, I'm just going to build, I'm not going to focus on, on cost. Right. So like, you know, CFO is just like, dude, you know, maybe you could drop the cost down on this. Maybe you could change this. Maybe you're, you know, you can get nutty in the engineering world and start coming up with alternatives on materials. I'm like, I ain't doing any of that shit. I'm not going to build a mount that's not compromised in any way, shape or form, because I'm going to treat it like your ass is on the line. Your life's on the line. You're you're out there hunting fucking bear and you slip on a rock or you're you're lowering yourself down from a tree and you bump your glass like big deal. You bump your glass and now the party's over. And maybe that bear does show up and fuck the trophy. Maybe you can't even protect yourself. So I'm treating the mounts as if they're a critical element that can cause you to friggin' die. Yeah. Well, <laughs> and, and there's, like, just like you say, traveling for some people. Right. But no, there's like traveling the, the matches. There's a certain mindset. A lot more people drive now because we have so many matches. But back in the day when you were coming down to RO, you've been to matches down there and see how big and what an event it was and everybody flying into town. Yep. But now yep. a lot more driving and stuff. But, it, you know, there's still a group of people that don't want their scope on the rifle when they fly. But then like exactly. I, I go to the match. I go to this match this weekend. There's a hundred two inch shooting C's on a board. None of them are marked. Everybody's going up and zeroing and checking zero. And every day there's there's a group of 10, 15, 20 people running out to the check zero line, checking zero and just throwing Swiss cheese down at this board with 200 shooting C's on it. Well, when your mount kind of returns to zero the way it does, there's that peace of mind where you know you're still going to be within that two and shoot and see, and you're not going to be chasing where was my impact when you know you can't go down range. You know, you can't go and you're depending on somebody else to spot for you. And so there's this peace of mind that comes in and knowing, well, 
I feel better taking my glass off. Now, me, Frank, I don't. I leave my shit on and lock it in. But if you're one of those guys who feels better taking your glass off when you're getting on an airplane, well, when you put it back on at your destination and it's within that minute, you know, it's like, well, that's easy to, to nudge it two tenths here or there, a tenth here or there, and to get a dead perfect zero again if that's what you your brain requires. But, I mean, even with me pulling barrels on and off, pulling barrels on and off of my AI, I can go to a training situation. I can pull the mount off. I can pull the barrel off on my systems, put them on when I show up at class, and still do a demo. I mean, I took your, 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 your Primid out uh, last week in between all this travel I'm doing, and I did 400 yards, 600 yards, and 800 yards of basically on and off and still hitting the same piece of steel. You know what I mean? <laughs> so at distance, I'm on it. I could do it at 100 yards, and it's definitely in there, and it's kind of like the, the bitches and, and some of the things. The groups aren't pretty at 100 yards, but they're within that inch, inch and a half. You know what I mean? They're right there. On a system with no fixture, I'm shooting off a bipod, there's wind going on. Like I told you, my wind kicked up pretty hard when I was filming all this stuff. Kind of washed out some of the sound that I was doing. So it, it it's it's not always great to be able to say, well, here's here's a here's a sub half MOA group because I'm moving shit around constantly, one on, one off, one on, one off, one on, one off. But at the same time, I can do that one-on-one-off, and I'm hitting a 66% or at 600 yards. Right, and that's also a testament, though, to your shooting skills, right? Your wind-calling skills and and all these other things. Yeah, yeah, I mean, you got to do that, too. At 600, I'm still calling wind. Right. So again, um, just to just to just to clarify on the on the engineering side, um, you know, through the product development, the spiral development over the years, what we're always trying to do is eliminate the other variables so that we could see where our mount is failing. And the only way you can see where the mount is failing is to remove the shooter, remove the ammunition, right? Because we all know there's a reason that guys do load development, right? How many how many minutes of angle or tenths of a minute of angle can you deviate from one load to the other, right? Barrels, triggers, shooters, glass, and then environmentals. That's a lot of variables there. And it's hard to sift through that to really discern, is it the mount? Is it the mount that did that? So, you know, we take, you know, again, back back to these guys, you know, at, at Trigicon, we take their approach. We remove all those variables and we test that zero tension um, or the return to zero, uh, as you were just speaking to, um, on, on a collimator. Doing that in a lab, you do that in a lab, you have, um, you know, for those of you unfamiliar with collimator, uh, you have like, think of like a PVC tube that's maybe, I don't know, eight inches, nine inches in diameter and six feet long. So you got this tube and inside that tube, you have an illuminated grid that's uh, that when it lights up and you can see the, the little sub tensions there uh, measured in increments there uh, of uh, fractions of an MOA. And then outside of that tube on a, on a base, on a bolted down Picatinny rail, you secure the optic to it. So now nothing's moving and you put the mount on and you have a uh, camera that zooms in behind the ocular 
and takes an image of the, the reticle of that optic as it's superimposed over the uh, that, that illuminated uh, Milleredian grid on the inside. You follow me? Yeah, totally. And so, and, and so you take a picture and then you take it off and you put it on and you keep doing that. You do that 50 times, do it 100 times, do it till you puke. But then you can see the variances when you take it off and put it back on. And that's where we really now get to see, hey, this has nothing to do with the shooter or wind or, or load development. We can see what the mount's doing. That's how we can isolate it. And so over the years of doing this and the mount, the mount improving in its performance capabilities, you know, we, we have some of, of the manufacturing partners that we've worked with who've done the collimator testing. They're getting they're getting 0 0.01 MOA, okay? You're like, wow, that's freaking a lot. Or even if you round it up aggressively to 0 0.1, one-tenth of a minute of angle, that would be on the extreme side. So imagine that kind of variation. You've basically removed the deviations that the mount can introduce to your impact, to your group. Does that all make sense? Yeah, absolutely. And that, and to me, that's the secret sauce that people don't understand. That's the, that's the kind of mindset, hearing it from you, the horse's mouth, like, Hey man, this is where my brain's at. This is what I'm thinking. This is what you guys are paying for when it comes to a GDI mount. You know, and why after, you know, 18 years of this, if not a little bit more, 19, almost mm -hmm. 20 years of you and I having mm -hmm. a, a relationship, Frank's still in Marco's court. And I appreciate that, brother. Um, yeah, it's like if you're if you're the kind of guy like I kind of think these the whole shooting community, what I love about it is that everybody's so technical, like very technical. And like you look at the stuff like like Litz is doing and the ballistics and the calculators, like fuck the dope book. Like it's freaking the science is just out of control. So if you're already that guy who's nuking the fuck out of it, you're measuring your velocities. You got your shit. You're just dialing everything. Your Kestrel's out there. Got you using your different computers and tracking all your stuff, your BCs, the, the, the bullet guys are doing their part. You know, the barrel guys are doing their part. Well, the mount guys got to do their part too. And that's, Right in the beginning, right when I started, I said, I'm either going to build it the right way or I'm not going to build it at all. And it's all we do is mounts. So I'm a mount nerd. I nuke the fuck out of it. And uh, and here we are. So segueing that in there, you know, it, it costs a little bit more, not a lot more. It's not like, you know, it's like, oh, it's going to be four times the cost of a, a regular mount. But there's a little extra juice on there. And and it goes, you know, back to, you know, how we build them. And so try and visualize this, right? Like in 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 machining, when you get it set up, say on a on a fourth or fifth axis machine, um, whatever you're building it on, um, you could take the material, whatever you're using, whatever billet you're using, square, round, whatever, and you're running it through the machine, and that's referred to as you know, uh, you know, your speeds and feeds, right? So, so you're, you're, you're feeding that, um, that material into the machine so that the, the end mill is cutting it, right? To speak in very general terms, or just to give you the visualize visualization. Well, imagine if your speeds and feeds were so excessive that it's kind of like when the, you know, the, the, the tree guys go out there and they have that wood chipper and they're just like, you know, running a freaking 
a branch through it. If you're running your shit through that, and yeah, it's aluminum and the machine can handle it and it can hog that stuff out, it's just going to be that much harder. It's going to be impossible to maintain the same tolerances as if you're going slow. If you go slow, you can control your tolerances and the variations and, and that that speaks to the quality control and why we don't want to mess with that is kind of like with the apple pie recipe. You don't want to fuck with the recipe. So we already know the, what the performance can do. If we build them slow, if we build them too fast, um, you know, if we run them through the wood chipper too fast, it's more than the machine can handle to maintain those tolerances. You can go fast, but you just can't go excessively fast. And that's the way you save time is with spindle time, right? So you can run it through. Like if you said, hey, I want to build the cheapest mount on planet Earth, fuck it. Run it through, man, like a wood chipper. The tolerances will be off. It'll show up in quality control when you're micing stuff up, putting the calipers on them. But you won't care because you're like, you know what, this dude, he doesn't give a shit if he shoots, you know, three, four minutes of, of angle on a clear calm day on, on a bench with bags, right? Like that's like, who wants that performance? I don't want that. So, you know, we're interested in, in the accuracy piece and we're interested in the reliability piece for a lot of reasons, you know, whether it's for the hunter or for the operator. And so we build shit and we control the speeds and feeds to control the tolerances, which then gives us the net result of all the findings that all these companies and contracts that we bid on have also found. So that there's consistency there. There's not a, there's not a plan B or B string GBI mount. We just build it one way, and you know. So so here you go. Yeah. No. That's so it. we're That's now the, the 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 prime mid. You you get together with Jim. You're gonna put this out. Mm-hmm. You price it mm-hmm. at the five fifty. Where guys coming to get these now? Where are they gonna pick them up? Are they gonna buy them through Prime? Are they gonna get them through GDI? Where's the sales having it? Right. So there's there's a there's a sales component there to it where we dropped the price kind of like discounted at 50 bucks off of the MSRP. So down the road, it'll be like the same, like the L model and the M model, um, you know, at the six. But, you know, they're, they're, we're rolling it out kind of like this uh, this holiday special type thing. Um, and just, you know, with with this COVID and all the weirdness going on. Uh, maybe guys aren't going to as many events. They're not getting out there socializing. They're not doing stuff, but they're still doing their shit on their own. They're able to pick it up, pick it up at a discount. Yeah, it's it's uh, it's gonna it's gonna come out. There's gonna be links that are gonna direct people straight to uh, Jim's website there at Prime Ammunition, and um, he's got his his staff there that'll field calls, um, you know, answer questions on it. But it's pretty much you know they're gonna they're gonna handle all the order taking and then we'll get busy on the build side and um delivering those in 150 days 120 to 150 days but we're just going to say 150 days and that's just adding a little buffer there just because of the realities of you know look i'm sure wherever you live in the country people are talking about the 70 80 ships sitting off the port of long beach um, well, it's more than just that, even if, I mean, none of our stuff comes off of ships coming off of Long Beach, but supply chain issues is the point. So when we're speaking to the mills and all the other players in there, we feel like that's a, that's a very doable time period. And so they place the order now, uh, through Jim's company, uh, in 150 days, uh, product ship, they get it at the door. 
Um, and they can, they'll, there'll be a couple shipping options that Jim will have available for them. So if the guy needs it, um, you know, overnight, then he can have that option. Well, so. and, and I'll tell you, that I, like, I didn't talk to you about this earlier, just to kind of, you mm-hmm. know, bullshitting, but, um, like I'm relaunching this website, your website, the web, uh, the podcast, the podcast is kind of getting a, a revamp for 2022. And you, I consider this sort of the, the early release and I'm calling this sort of new, uh, version of it, the knowledge bomb edition. And I think you just dropped some like knowledge bomb on the Mount world that people may not realize. And that this was a friggin', you know, nuclear bomb fucking drop of information for people to realize where the mindset is when you're putting these products together, where, well, you know, what do you have to think? The variables you're left errors are cumulative. Like you just said, you know, you, you can accumulate all these errors. Well, we don't want to be within that accumulation of errors and, and how do we eliminate that? So, I mean, to me, this was just, this is a giant friggin fire hose of knowledge on what it takes to put a mount into the system and if you think about it i mean marco's telling you going back to 2001 2002 2003 there's the gdi's been out there at the front on the military side you hadn't heard of them all right most people don't know a gdi mount there are some people who do who've come out of the military Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but gdi's still here going strong doing its thing and you got to wonder about that. Okay, I got I got a product here that's in the precision rifle world, in the shooting community. That's, yeah, maybe I've heard of it on the peripheral. How's it still going? I mean, think of how many AR com- companies have come and gone. Oh, I got our AR. I'm, I got a CNC machine. I created an AR. There's a rush on ARs. Mags are off the shelf. I need to sell this, do that. You know, you got all these, you know, oh, Sandy Hook just happened. Everybody buy an AR. Those guys are mm-hmm. gone. Those guys come and go. And, you yeah. know, you, you, you're, you're here knocking it out, surviving, because you've done it right for so long for the right people, for the right reasons. Appreciate that, Frankie. Yeah, I mean, at, at the end of the day, um, we love what we do, and we love the customers, the end users, whatever the fuck they're doing out there. We want them to know that they got the best mount that we could possibly build on the planet. It's just our opinion. And yes, we do drink our own fucking Kool-Aid because we've been there, we've done it. And hey, props to the other mount guys that are out there. It's props to the weapons guys that are out there. Props to anybody that's out there hanging through this bullshit and putting out good. Here's the thing. American made, 110 fucking percent. Every little widget and component proprietary to our mounts, it's all built with love right here by Americans for Americans. It's like nothing comes from overseas. I give no fucks. If no ships can come in to the port regarding the building of the mounts, everything comes from the red, white, and blue built by the Americans built by vets built by guys who give a fuck built by guys that are in the industry and have a passion, sick, insatiable passion for precision shooting. That's our jam. Yeah. I'm not interested in becoming the biggest mount manufacturer. I give no, dude. I, we're, we're small. We stay small. We build some precision. We put the mounts out. What we can build is what we build. End of story. And uh, and we're, we're not going in any other directions. You know, we're not trying to build other other types of very needed product. I think there's enough guys out there expertly building them already, like 
like Casey, you know, with his bipods or like, you know, guys, I mean, guys fucking amazing build builds sick ass triggers, use his shit on uh, my platforms. Um, and, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I mean, you know what I mean? And, and, and all, the, all the other players, all the other players out there, like freaking props. I couldn't say this enough, man. Like props to, to Marty over at Badger, man. How many phone calls, in the early days that he field to kind of mentor me in the beginning, you know, Marty's freaking legend and I used his shit in the teams and, um, you know, to even be able to walk up to a guy like that and shake hands and just remember the history. It's just, um, I just love being in the space and Hey man, we're not here on earth for fucking ever and ever, you know, we're little blips on the screen, you know, build, build, build what you build build it with some love, take care of your freaking people and the story. There you That's go, it. man. There you go. So you guys, you got GDI engineering.com. So if anybody wants yeah. to check it out, they could go over, pop over to GDI engineering. Yeah. Only the L models on there. Um, the, the, this primate is going to go live uh, for the first time ever. And the only place ever is going to be Jim's Jim's website. It'll have some, uh, some images there. We could talk about that you know, so that he can get his shopping cart dialed in. We got a couple, three, uh, there'll be a data sheet there, spec sheet. They can kind of read some of the things that we spoke about as far as uh, performance uh, capabilities. And then, uh, and then, yeah, they'll, they'll, they're going to process the whole thing. As far as the sales piece, we're going to run it. I think the sale is going to run from uh, uh, Friday, the 10th, uh, two days and, uh, or, What's that? Tense tomorrow, right? Yeah, something like that. Whatever Friday is, I'm I'm with you too. Whatever Friday is until on. Yeah, and that's going to run till uh, from the 10th until. uh, Is that the the 20th? I want to say. So it'll run through the weekend, right? So if it drops this Friday, it'll run through the weekend, the whole work week next week, and then that that weekend as well so you got two weekends and a work week there to get your get your shit dialed and know um you know yeah and the, and there's going to be some um images links video and stuff on mm-hmm, sniper side mm-hmm. um i'm, yep, I'm yep. doing my part all coming in in between my travels have ended and so i was able to knock i may have to reshoot a talking head part of the video i think i called it a pyramid instead of a primate uh just fucking spacing <laughs> And, that's the Egyptian in you. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, you know, pyramids are good fucking engineering fucking design. Yeah. yeah. So um, anyway, I, I think right. I may I got to go back and look at the video, but um, I may have done that. But anyway, that's an easy fix. But it, uh, yeah, so Sniper's Hide, you can always find out about GDI. You can always hit me up about GDI. I've taken some tons of videos and uh, images. So you'll see some of the images with mounting my stuff. I've been out. I use it. I believe in the product. Continue to believe in the original product um, since day one. And I don't have any long-term caveats. You know what I mean? There's no, yeah, but, you know what I mean? It's just, it really, it comes down to um, a price point for some people. But, you know, where you can get it in availability, I happen to have access to some of Marco's stuff a little easier than other people. So for me, it's easy to get one and to run it and to do that kind of stuff where I know like Mike at CS Tactical sells your stuff and a couple other guys, maybe even um, Alex and some Mile High and uh, Euro, I think, had your stuff as well. And uh, Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I got to circle back to all these guys and and, uh, and re-engage to the degree that they're, 
you know. But that wasn't your that wasn't your system. You weren't the commercial sales guy. Yeah. You were the dot gov guy. You know what I mean? And so that's kind of that's kind of where you you know you're not selling th- th- uh, through Euro Optic to see the dot gov world. You know, and that's kind of just the way it is. Right, right. And you know, one of the challenges with uh, the commercial space in the past was when we were you know, uh, to overuse the term myopically focused on, on the mill gov side, it was very difficult to, you know, to, to handle the production side, to do the, you know, one off five off, uh, you know, orders that were coming in on the commercial side, whereas we're used to, Hey, we got to build, you know, whatever, 800 to go to this battalion, as an example, um, you can't really do that in the commercial side. So nowadays, um, you know, it's been a minute. We've shifted gears. Um, there's 110% focus on this commercial piece. We have uh, dedicated uh, people on step ready just for this initiative. So what we build, we build it. We're taking care of this space. So it's not like back in the day where it was really hard to get one of our mounts. Yeah. And, and, and the prime mid looks good. It's not oversized. It's small. It has that skeletonized sort of look to it. It's a mm-hmm. solid optic with with your rock solid friggin' mounting system and attachments. Your throw levers are there, and it's the same exact throw lever pattern, but in a, in a in a sort of modernized 2021 2022 mount design. You know mm-hmm. where it's not quite as boxy as they were happy with a couple of years ago. Um, mm-hmm. You know, but now we're getting that cool kind of look, and and you got it all built into this mount. You know, you wouldn't be on it and go, oh, what do you got that on? It's, it looks like it belongs. It's, 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 it's got some, uh, it's got some cool sexy to it, you know, but it's, but it's, it's a, it's a bomber beast, you know, just understand that it's, it's uh, engineering roots come out of that whole breadcrumb trail of timeline development that we've done. You know, it's, it's got the guts of uh, of a machine gun optic mount, but in a lightweight profile. Yep. And and you can red dot it. Um, you have a plate that will go on if any of the working guys out there, your LE or anybody like that, or a smaller team that, that's listening to this, um, that wants to reach out and you run red dots on the side of your mount, 45 degree, you, you got your red dot there. Um, and, and your mounting system goes right onto it. So you, you recognize that need as well. And you, and you do have a plate for, um, Trigicons, doctors and uh, aim points. Yeah, so let's let's just speak to that just to clarify. Um, so the 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 mounts um, on the top side, you got the ring caps. Um, that top side geometry of the ring caps accepts our maps system, which is the modular adapter plate system. And that map system, um, we're not rolling that out right now. I mean, it's been around for for a decade, um, but. We're just going to get the mounts out there right now, but just know that for the future, if you want to utilize one of our maps, we build a maps for the Trigicon RMR um, inside MRDS. Uh, there's there's one there also for the Aimpoint Micro. So this adapter plate, this map system, um, has the mating geometry to match up with the ring cap, and that'll position that can be positioned. Um, at the uh, one o'clock or eleven o'clock uh, side of the ring cap, there's slight little tilt, and you can you can see them either on the forward or the rearward uh, ring cap. So it gives four quadrants, so to speak, four areas that uh, shooter can find uh, per their preference. 
Um, so we'll, we'll announce that when we're going to roll those out, we might even throw an additional maps in there for other, other more current red dots that are commonly used out there. But, you know, the, those, those are, uh, for guys that want to have either rapid target acquisition, you know, you can very quickly at distance, uh, have a soft cheek in and, uh, and utilize the red dot to get it on target and then just settle in and then boom, your, uh, you know, your target is right is right in your, your field of view. So. Got it. Got it. So um, what else you got to plug, Marco, before I, I kept you for almost two hours here now. So Holy shit. Yeah, yeah. We, you and I People talk like this like, all the time anyway. When do we ever go off the phone before, like less than two, three hours? It's fun. We're nerds, man. We so, really are. I mean, we talk for days really and days. So I don't know what else you got going or around the or world. we're like two schoolgirls, maybe. We're like two schoolgirls. Well, there's that too. We do giggle a there's lot. That too. Yeah, that's right. Um, nothing, nothing else to chat about, my man. You've given me more than enough time, and and uh, you know, appreciating through the story, uh, your inquiry on the history because it's you know it's it's been a minute, um, and hopefully all relevant to everybody listening out there. And uh, appreciate you and uh, you know your your audience that that uh, taps into the great value that you bring. I mean. Man, you've come a long way. We haven't talked about your your journey, but uh, the, the the forum, your YouTube channel, the content that you put out, your training. I mean, you're on the road teaching classes. You're uh, you're a G. You're OG, man. So uh, gratitude and props to you, Frankie. Absolutely, man. Appreciate it. Like I said, it, it, we've been taking this journey together, and 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 you know, it, it's great that we've had so much fun the whole time. I mean, we're always laughing. We, you know, it's like I see Marco at Shot Show. It's like, hey, man, you still submitting young boys? And he's like, yeah, a little bit. Fucked <laughs> up. Yeah. All right. yeah. Well, that's what you do when you get get a guy on the mat. You know, you, you choke him out. It's a little fucked up, but you know, guys who roll understand it. Yeah, yeah. So cool. So yeah. stay on the line. I'm gonna sign us off with the music, man, and we're gonna and we're gonna let it go. Um, but stay on the line. Yep. I'll talk to you just before we get it. Hey, everybody, this is coming back. We're going to be going to two days a week again with the podcast. I'm ready to go, ready to revamp. I just, I mean, just for this Marco podcast, I moved my system into a different room in the house. So I didn't get that echo that I had in the big room downstairs. And and so we're, we're kind of getting ready to put everything in place for 2022. This is a first look at it somebody said frank's kind of like the joe rogan of the um precision rifle world in the podcast so i'm going to go a little bit longer for you guys and and give you a little bit more time on the mic um because you're asking for it uh, i get a lot of people blowing me up and pinging me uh when i backed off a little bit and, and took a few steps back thank you to everybody who reached out thanks to everybody who comes up to me and sees me a lot of guys at the match last weekend hey you know appreciate the podcast can't wait for more and uh, met put some names to faces. KCH out there, a big commenter in the Podbean app. I met KCH. So if you guys ever see his name, uh, met him for the first time. So appreciate all my my listeners and everybody out there. And definitely to Marco, to Jim, uh, the Prime Mid man. It's a hell of a mount. I, I got it going on right here, and and it's it's working for me. And I'm a happy camper with that guy. And um, it's it's just there. Merry Christmas, Happy New Year, and we'll talk to everybody soon. Hey, Frankie, yeah. hate to cut in on your exit out. One big important thing everybody will give a shit about. For the hunters, we dropped the center axis uh, height above rail. 
from the 1535, it's down at 125. So, yes, it is uh, a lower mount, so for sure. It's a lower mount. A lot, a lot of the guys were asking about that. So anyway. Yeah, 1.25, one, one man, instead of the uh, the 155s or the one, whatever you were, 153. Uh, yep. Absolutely, man. So thanks, everybody, for listening, and we will talk to you guys soon. You'll see me in a couple of days.